Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Few things are more devastating than a loved one that's gone missing. From Wondery, The Vanished is a podcast where host Marissa Jones tells stories of missing persons that have gone overlooked. She seeks out the real story from friends and family, hoping to help them find their loved ones or at least a sense of peace. Listen to The Vanished podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app. Welcome back to Reasonable Doubt, the podcast. My name is Rob Rosen. I'm the creator and executive producer of Reasonable Doubt. And my name is Detective Chris Anderson. I'm a retired homicide investigator and the co-host of Reasonable Doubt. And I'm Fatima Silva, criminal defense attorney and co-host of Reasonable Doubt. All right, Fatima, do we have a disclaimer for you for uh, this podcast? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) if I sound nasally uh, and totally congested, it is true. Um, Yeah, I probably I'm home with a sick kid. And in COVID times, when you have a sick child and you're sick, there's there's nobody else who wants to take your child because it's like, even though we're not we don't have COVID, it's like we have the plague. So I didn't have anyone to take my child today, including my own parents. <laughs> so um, I'm home. I don't know, Chris. Should we be doing this podcast with her? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, maybe we could catch some sort of digital. I know, right? As I we better we better check with the CDC. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna get back, we're gonna get back to you. We're gonna consult on this one. <laughs> Maybe we should um, cover cover our microphones so yeah, it, with our masks. <laughs> I'm just gonna be in and out when I can in between uh, coughing and my kids screaming, wanting more attention. So just bear with me, guys. Okay. Well, family dynamics in the uh, Silva household. Family dynamics. Do you, do you like this transition I made? Family dynamics in this episode that we're doing. Um, Disclaimer that we always give, if you haven't watched the show yet, there's nothing but spoilers here. Please pause the podcast, watch the show. It's on every Monday night, 10 p.m. on Investigation Discovery. Uh, this week, we're going to discuss the Kara Garvin case. If you did watch it, we're just going to give you a little refresher before we begin talking about it. Franklin Furnace, Ohio. The evening of December 22nd, 2008. The Mullet family's home in their trailer. Suddenly... Someone burst in and begins firing. Within moments, three people are dead. 20-year-old Christina, her 46-year-old father, Edward, and his 43-year-old wife, Juanita. There's only one survivor, their six-year-old grandson, Anthony. He runs to a neighbor's house and calls 911. 911. Some girl came up there and I killed my mammal and my sissy and my papa. 
Franklin Furnace is a tiny town. And police immediately hone in on 29-year-old Kara Garvin. She's a known drug user. And the mullets are known drug dealers who had done business with her for years. We were charging for three counts of aggravated murder tonight. Two thousand ten. Kara Garvin goes on trial for the triple murder. The prosecution's case mostly comes down to two key witnesses: Anthony, nine one one, the child survivor, and Kara's ex-boyfriend Paul Balmer, who led police to the murder weapon. He testifies that Kara did it while he waited in the car. Never left the car. Never got out of the car. Paul Balmer cuts a deal and gets a 17-year sentence. Kara Garvin is convicted of triple murder and is now serving a life sentence without the chance of parole. Guys, when you sat down at the table with Andy, who's Kara's sister, and Audrey, Kara's mom, what were some of your first impressions? Because obviously, it really turned out that Audrey was just not open to hearing any kind of truth uh, about this case. You think? Yeah, yeah, she was not open at all. And I can pretty, you know, it was kind of obvious when we first sat down, but I really, and just looking at her facial expression, she's totally convinced that her daughter, Kara, could not be involved in this case in no way, shape or form. And even, I must say, even myself, when I looked into this case, or looked at the, the, you know, the initial portions of the investigations, you know, I had actual hopes for this case because you don't see this type of violence conducted by a lone female gunman in most cases, especially when you add in the fact that there are drugs involved, there are robberies involved. There's a whole lot of violent, violent acts. So with no you know, history of violence, with, with no history of violence. That's exactly right. So, yeah, I had a, I had hopes for this case. But uh, as the you know, as we go into our investigations and we start peeling back the layers of this case, it there was no real scenario that I saw that Kara was completely uh, uh, wrongfully convicted in this case. As far as first impressions, you know, the mom off the bat, you can tell the moms oftentimes they're the hardest. (laughs) They're always extremely strong. Um, they're very to the point you know, they don't get overly emotional. If you go back and you watch our seasons, moms, usually they hold it together really well and they have, you know, they have something to say for every little thing. Um, and, and I, I love that because, you know, I always say this, I'm a mom, but I just think that mothers are fierce and no matter what you say, they're going to love their child. They're going to defend their child. And at the end of the day, you can't blame them, but whether their child did it or not, they want their child home. Let's be honest. They're not here for truth. They're here to get their child home. In the eyes of the law, that's not right. But in the eyes of a mother and that relationship, you you get it. So it was clear that Kara's mom was there to free her daughter, no matter what evidence we were going to bring. But Andy was a different story. From the start, Andy was very vulnerable, very emotional, and she was open. But I could just see the hurt and pain in her, not just of her sister being gone, but probably from her mother not being so present all these years. You could just see that, you know, she says, I have a daughter too, and my daughter's needed her grandmother. I've needed my mother. And I get that. For anybody who has 
experience in their families when there's somebody who is an addict, oftentimes they get a lot more attention than the child who's doing you know, perfectly well and trying to live a law abiding uh, life and, you know, working, raising their kids. It's the other child oftentimes because the parent feels maybe they failed in some way. They're trying to compensate. They're trying to save them and it never stops. And so you see that here with Andy, that a part of her is here because she's saying, I want answers so that I can have my mother back. I spoke to Andy, and I'm going to give you guys an update on that uh, later on in the podcast. Um, but I do want to play that clip because I thought the uh, you know the family dynamics in the show are really uh, very complex sometimes. And this was one of those cases. You could feel the tension between the two of them. Now, Andy, how about you? I mean, what keeps you in this fight? I know that she's innocent, and I know that she needs to be home. And I've not only lost my sister, but I've lost my mom. How so? Because everything revolves around Kara in this case. It was just but a big hole. When it comes to Andy, I believe that no matter no, no matter what she says, no matter what she does, even if she felt as though her sister Kara was involved in this murder, she can't say anything because she's afraid that she'll lose her own mother behind it, which she in a in a sense she really has because Every, just like she said during our interview, everything revolves around Kara and this case and that every conversation that they have, every family gathering that they have, it usually in some way involves talking about Kara and the case. Let's move on to the investigation. Um, one of the key things, and I'd love to get uh, your input from both of you, is that one of the key witnesses was Anthony who was the one survivor of the shooting. He was six years old at the time of the shooting. And there were some discrepancies between what he told police the night of the shooting and what he testified to. Does that discredit him or was he still a valuable witness? I, I think he's a very valuable witness. Uh, can you take everything he said to the bank and cash it in? No, you can't. He's a six-year-old child that's been put in something that most living adults have never experienced in their life. He saw his grandfather, his grandmother, and his aunt murdered right there before him. And, you know, he's very lucky to have kept his own life. So you can't, but you can't discredit him making some, his entire statement, because when he got on the phone, that 911 call was chilling to me. It's a six-year-old kid that that is describing the the death of his the, the, the people that he probably loves the most being done by a female. And, you know, look, I just don't think that you can discredit everything he says. Now, can, is he going to, are there going to be small points that he's going to mess up? Yeah, we see that with adults. But he's a six-year-old child that's able to not only describe what happened, describes the person and actually identify. Well, and we've learned through all our seasons, right, that when it comes to identification, <clears throat> there's a lot of variables involved. And one of them is, you know, the chaos of it, the situation, whether it's light or dark, how many people are in the room and who the people are that are the victims. That's going to affect you. So in this case, and, and that's with adults, we take into consideration all those factors. And we know Experts have explained to us that when somebody's making an identification, they're going to describe different things about the person. 
it just depends on what they're focused on. They're, they're not always focused on everything about the person. There's always a, a couple of things that draw them in. So for this little boy, he's not even an adult. He's six years old. So I have to say, as far as his credibility, uh, I, I believe he's credible in that he believes what he's saying, especially on the 911 call. Now, reliability, that's different for me. I wouldn't say that his 911 call is incredibly reliable, but that's, you know, based on his age and his relation to the victims. He had that, those were his grandparents, his aunt. He just endured a traumatic event. He says, according to him, that the perpetrator looked at him and then, you know, left. And so he probably thought he was going to get shot. You're six years old. I can't imagine what is going through your mind. But there are some things you have to say, okay, he definitely, that's something that he didn't get wrong. That's something that is pretty consistent. So we have different descriptions of what she's wearing. Uh, we have even different descriptions of the weapon. He says first it's silver, but then in court he says, well, it's black and silver. And it was, but I guess he just noticed the silver part. And he says her hair was dark. So and we know that Kara had lighter hair when, when this occurred. So there are certain things that, uh, you know, don't match, but then he's consistent with it's a female. And I remember asking the expert, are they, is he going to make an error on something like the gender of the person? And he said, that's just not likely. There are certain things they may not get right, but a gender of someone, specifically if they're saying it's a woman, that means he likely saw a woman. So it, out of everything that that six-year-old said, the one thing that remained was it was a woman. And that's important because all along the family wants to believe that this is a Paul Balmer setup. Um, the little boy said Paul Balmer had often come to their house. He actually had bought a knife off of Paul. So he knew Paul by name and by face. And he said, when they asked him, was it Paul? He said, no. Um, but one more thing that he said that was super interesting to me is he says, she kicks through the door and she has spiky shoes on. And I kept that, I kept thinking about that because once again, that's something he obviously focused on, right? So I went back and looked at the shoes that Kara had on, and they're these Harley Davidson shoes that on the bottom, there's these ridges. They're not necessarily spikes, but they look like spikes. They, they're ridged at the bottom and, sh and a little sharper. Um, it's not a normal sole of a shoe, that style. And it's uh, a shiny shoe, and it looks like it could have spikes. That's how a, a, I think a child would describe it. So that was very interesting, that that was something that stood mm. out to him. And it wasn't far off from the pair of shoes that she was wearing. You mentioned Paul Balmer. And uh, Chris, you had my uh, one of my favorite lines of the season when you said he could not mastermind his way out of a room with one door, which you even got a smile out of Kara from that one. But um, the family really was kind of, uh, it seemed to me, boxed into a corner where basically they were stuck arguing that Paul Balmer had masterminded this and started planning it months and months in advance. And that was really their only out card. But it seemed as though as, as the investigation went on, that became more and more unlikely. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, look, I didn't get the opportunity to talk with Paul. Uh, maybe if I had spoken with him, I would have thought a little bit different. I highly doubt it, but it's possible. So here's the thing. So I had to go back and listen to all of the uh, interviews that the law enforcement did with Paul. And he just did not give off that type of vibe as I'm listening to these interviews. You know, he's a really, really 
quiet and that could be because he's with law enforcement but he's really really quiet he's rather is you know, somewhat reserved you can tell that he's he's been utilizing drugs for quite some time uh, but you know during his interviews he he didn't give off that that mastermind type vibe he didn't you know he's not a, a confident fellow he, you know he's not a a, a very boisterous fellow you know it, these, these. I, I disagree chris i think you are a magnificent mastermind when you're trying to escape the police but you still have your phone on and they track you down in florida and that's how they're able to get you <laughs> yeah you know those are <laughs> we always yeah, have these scenarios know. where everybody wants this person to be the smartest person yet mm -hmm. he, he they're also they can't explain away the dumb choices that person makes Right. And so and, and I don't want people to think that I've just completely disregarded the mastermind theory. It, it just the way that it would have had to have happened in order for her not to be involved and have no clue as to what was happening. It would have taken too much time. It would have taken too much planning. And I just don't think that he could have come up with the elaborate scheme right. that the family was trying to say was involved in this murder. And and Chris, it would have started with three months ago, beginning this yeah. plot by calling in the, the gun that was stolen and then somehow finding another woman to take her place. I mean, it yeah. was pretty involved. Now, speaking of uh, brilliant masterminds, I don't mean to be flipped, but Kara Garvin has had 11 years to think about what happened and what her story is gonna be. And she talks to you and you ask her about the hair dye. And of course, right after uh, these murders happen within about a couple hours, she's going to a store and she's dyeing her hair, which is obviously highly suspicious. When you asked her about it, I was pretty amazed at her answer. We went to a subway, get something to eat, got some hair dye. Let me stop you there. What made you want to do your hair that night? Nothing specific other than the fact that I had some really long roots. Was it your idea to dye your hair? I don't remember him asking me to or if I brought it up. I, I don't. Doesn't it seem like a huge coincidence that maybe an hour, two hours after this murder happened, you're then dyeing your hair? Well, it wasn't a coincidence at that time because I didn't know a murder had happened. Uh, Chris, I love your mm. That's always a little tell of yours when you do these <laughs> interviews. But I mean, if if we're trying to say that Paul Balmer masterminded this, wouldn't the obvious answer have been, I didn't want to dye my hair. He was really insistent. He's like, I really want you to be a, a brunette. Um, I'm, so, I'm so glad you pulled that portion out of this uh, that interview, because that is exactly what I was thinking. You know, look, here it is. We are years past the, the investigation, years past her conviction, conviction, and she's been sitting and stewing on this this story that she could have told us for years now. And then we give her the opportunity to give us a statement about it, and she says, "Well, I don't remember exactly whose idea it was. No, if Paul masterminded this thing, he would have been. No, you need to dye your hair now. We we need we need this color dye. We don't need for you know just to push." the whole theory of him masterminding this whole thing all over more, you know, I would expect for her to come back and say, hey, yeah, it was him. It was him who wanted me to dye my hair. But no, she didn't say that. I can't remember exactly whose idea it was. Well, maybe it was yours. Yeah, my roots, my roots were getting My uh, roots were getting bad. I just <laughs> needed to, to dye my hair right after this murder happened. 
and the timing, it's like within an hour or two and it's late at night before you head off to Florida. Let's, I mean, throughout this process, what we looked for, if this person is the mastermind and he has done her so wrong, like this, this man has served, served 17 years, she's in there for life. You would think she would just be pissed at this person person, right? So we have access to everything, including a lot of jail mail. And there are a lot of letters from Kara to Paul Balmer. And I read each and every one of those letters. And never once is she saying in those letters, what is wrong with you? Why did you pin this on me? How could you do this to me? I hate you. You're going to, you know, you're going to pay for what you did. Or you sent me up with so-and-so, you know, she doesn't mention another name, anybody else it could have been that he perpetrated this crime with and then set her up. No, all of her letters are, we're going to get out of this. Don't do their jobs for them. I'm not doing their effing jobs, you know, for them. They can figure out everything. Uh, We had nothing to do with this. I know I did nothing wrong. So she's saying things like that to him. And then she's, you know, also nice to him in that stay strong in there. It's almost like she's, she's the manipulator almost, which makes no sense to me. And what, you know, in what we've heard about their relationship and the dynamic, Mm -hmm. but then you get a different story with their, their jail mail. You get this story of almost that she's letting him know, don't break, don't, you know, put this on us, you let make them do their job. And she's letting him know I'm here for you. And in a way that I'm here for you is don't, don't turn on me. So that was an issue I had, because if this person has set you up, then you're going to, you're not going to write letters like that to them ever. Uh, Another thing is, right, if they set you up, you're going to come up with, uh, whether they set you up, you're going to claim they set you up, come up with something better. Not, I don't know why I wanted to dye my hair. Like you said, it's simply, he made me do it that night. I don't know why he was very adamant that he liked my hair darker, that he thought I was sexier with darker hair. And I am, I would just do anything that that man said. So I dyed my hair, but you don't even get that. So we're forced to try to make these leaps and it's, it's just a lot to ask, common sense wise. Additionally, something that I had thought about was the fact that the little boy says her hair was dark. And so the family uh, always says, well, and I like this part because it's always nice when a family wants to pick and choose what part of somebody's testimony is credible. They completely want to discredit the little boy's testimony. But when it comes to the hair, they say, well, he said her hair was dark and Kara had blonde hair at the time and she dyed her hair darker later. So that makes sense. Well, well, that always bothered me. So I'm wondering what you guys think. I mean, was it just a coincidence and she actually dyed her hair to match the, 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 the poor description? Uh, She said, so she's naturally a brunette. And she says her roots were growing out a lot. We also see in a lot of photos, uh, one of her standard outfits was this bandana on her head. And you actually see it later when they're at Subway. She kind of wears like this uh, headband bandana. So if her hair is pushed back and she's wearing that, then what you are going to see in the front, her roots is going to be darker hair. So mm. it's possibly that's what the little boy, it's possible that's what the little boy saw was that darker hair. Um, and then she says, you know, later she goes and dyes it darker. Perhaps they felt like 
the the light part of her hair was going to be what the little boy emphasized on, right? The Mm -hmm. fact that she was blonde. And is it fair to say that just overall, you're dealing with two people who are very badly hooked on drugs. They're not making the most rational decisions at right. this point. Right. You can you can never judge a, a person that's strung out on drugs, especially how deep they care and Obama were. You can never expect for them to make really, really rational decisions because from my understanding, they were deep, deep, deep off into drugs during the time of this murder. You are listening to the Reasonable Dad podcast. We're discussing the Kara Garvin case. We're going to take a very short break. Coming up, Fatima has an explosive interview with a jailhouse informant. And Chris and Fatima try to break the bad news to the family, but it doesn't go so well. And we have an update from Andy, the sister. You're listening to the Reasonable Dad podcast. We will be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Few things are more devastating than a loved one that's gone missing. From Wondery, The Vanished is a podcast where host Marissa Jones tells stories of missing persons that have gone overlooked. She seeks out the real story from friends and family, hoping to help them find their loved ones or at least a sense of peace. Listen to The Vanished podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app. You're listening to the Reasonable Dad podcast. We're discussing the Kara Garvin case. All right, Fatima, I'm going to play a clip of your interview with uh, Brandy, the jailhouse informant. And obviously, at the end, she got upset with just a little bit of questioning and walked out. And I want to get your perspective on exactly what happened. Did Kara show any signs of emotion when she would talk about what happened? None. I've never seen her one time shed a tear. Do you remember her crying to you about not feeling any remorse? No. You testified to that. You don't remember saying that? No, I said what the prosecution told me to say. That's what makes me nervous. That, to me, does not sound credible. Then say I'm not credible. I don't care. I'm done. No, no, no. I'm I'm done. I'm done. I did feel her to be sincere. I did. She was emotional in, in her telling of the story. Um, and one of the things I always look for when we're dealing with what people refer to as jailhouse snitches is what is this person facing? And uh, at the time, Brandy actually was already out. So it's not like she had anything hanging over her head. Possibly if she did face something down the line, she would obviously get some leniency for this. So that's the elephant in the room there. But I did find her to be sincere. My issue is when you're sitting across from me and you want me to believe what you're saying and you're you're saying everything that you testified to was basically true. And then you later say, well, I just said whatever the prosecution told me to say. 
have to call that out. That's, that's a big issue, right? That means that you are possibly perjuring yourself on the stand. You are not credible. And when we're dealing with somebody's life, such as Kara's, and you're saying these things, even if it's just certain things that you're just saying because the prosecution tells you to and other things are true, it's hard to know and to decipher what is true and what's not true. So a person's credibility is shot. So I wanted to question her on that. And I think at that point, she, she had already been emotional. Look, everyone, I'm, you know, I'm not normally an interviewer. I'm a (laughs) criminal defense lawyer. So I just wanted some answers and I should have known that, you know, she had already kind of reached her limit, but I had to, I had to ask her those tough questions. And I did explain to her that I needed an explanation for that. She didn't want to sit back down and give it to us. So it had to end there. But uh, I, I stand by calling her out on that as I would call anybody else out on that. But And she took and she took the stand, right? So you wonder how she held up under cross-examination if she, can't, if she can't take some questioning. Well, and it's years later and she says this still traumatizes her and the whole situation. I don't know, but you, you have to be able to, you have to understand when a family is fighting for their loved one and saying you're not credible. And then you proceed to say, well, I just said whatever the prosecution told me to say, even right. if you're talking about one, you know, one part of your testimony that makes you not credible. That's why we're here. So I just don't think that we can have to apologize for calling out inconsistencies in a statement right. when we're dealing with a, a, a case that's just this in-depth and and this necessary. So I don't think we should have to apologize about that. If she didn't want to, you know, she should have understood what was going to happen. We're going to have to call her out on inconsistencies and something that she testified to. Right. So, yeah. So let, let's rewind for one second. Let's just say for a second that on some other levels, she is credible. The stories that she told about Kara in the prison, what she said about Anthony, the manipulation, that's pretty, that's pretty dark stuff. If, we, if she is to be believed, we are dealing with a very cold sociopath. Yeah, I, I, can't, I can't put any weight into what she said, really. Um, if, if that is something, I think there's a couple of different people, to be honest, who testified, they were jailhouse snitches who testified that she said something along those lines. If she committed this crime, she killed three people. So it's likely that she wouldn't care if a little boy's life was taken as well. And Mm -hmm. especially when that little boy is one of the main witnesses against you. So uh, uh, this little boy, Anthony, had known Kara and he had said that she had been to the house before. He didn't know her by name. And that's another thing that I felt was important on the 911 call that when they're asking him, do you know who it was? He says, or they asked him something like that. Do you know who it was? Do you know, do you know their name? And he says, I don't know her name. And that was a big deal to me. Hmm. He doesn't say, I don't know her. I've never seen her just, or I don't know. He says, I don't know her name. And that let me know that he knew this person. She was there almost every single day, either getting pills from them, giving them pills. This Everybody was intertwined in this community, in the drug community there with supplying one another until they could get more drugs. And we know the next day she was going to Florida to get more drugs. So she possibly, she was likely out of drugs if she committed this crime and she went there to get 
some drugs to get her fixed. And who knows what kind of confrontation well, had occurred. We know that they had been there earlier in that, that day. Maybe she didn't get what she wanted to get. So she came back, but. And, that, um, and that's interesting because I think um, one of the things that the family held on to were that was that there were some pills at the crime scene by the bodies. Oh gosh, a few. But that doesn't, but that doesn't. When you're necess- going for bottles of, you know. Right, right. So that's one of those things that they latch onto. Well, it couldn't have been that. That couldn't have been the motive because there were drugs on the scene. But we don't know. She could have walked out with a bunch of bottles. Like right. Said. He says that she, the little boy says she grabbed a bunch of bottles of pills, that she uh, grabbed the grandfather's wallet. And we do know that Ed Mullet's wallet is found um, right. on the side of the road. We know that when it is found, ironically, there's a little piece of paper in there with Kara's name and phone number on it. But we all know that there's a connection anyway, that that was not denied. They they all knew one another and she was there every single day. But uh, yeah, if you're going for a lot of pills and you're grabbing a bunch of different pill bottles and a few fall out, you're not going to sit there and pick every single one of them up when you're just trying to run out of a crime scene. So that really was neither here nor there, the fact that some are left behind we know that her habit was, it was hundreds of dollars a day. This is a serious uh, habit. And every single time that they wouldn't have the drugs, they'd start to obviously go through withdrawal. And it was very painful for her and she would get really moody. So he just kept supplying the drugs to her. I understand where their loved ones are coming from when they claim that Paul was just tired of supplying her all that. So he set her up. But ultimately, if she's taking in that many drugs every single day, then who knows what she's capable of. And and the family wants to say that she was trying to get sober so that she could get her daughter back. But that's not what, that's not at all what that evening or the events leading up to that evening, you know, point to. She is heavy into drugs and she's about to go to Florida where she gets more drugs. And so she's not trying to get her daughter back. She's not trying to get sober and, and do the right thing. They're packed up, ready to go to Florida. Well, so finally, you uh, met with the family, and I, I know it's never easy for you guys, but you gave them the decision. And I want to talk a little bit about Audrey, because she is, I, I don't mean to make her an example, but she is, like we said at the beginning of this podcast, one of those loved ones who, whenever we contact people, whenever we contact families, we always say, look, we're not guaranteeing that the decision is going to be one way or the other. Chris and Fatima have to look at the evidence and make those decisions. And as producers, all we're doing is gathering, you know, what are your best leads? Give us the four or five things that will convince Chris and Fatima to get on board. And family members always tell us, absolutely. And if you can show us that uh, Kara or whoever the convict was, was involved in this, we'll give up this fight because it's making us broke both emotionally as a family and also financially. And yet, a lot of times when you give the decision, you get a reaction like this. Convicts get new trials based on new facts, new evidence, not wild theories. So this lead, unfortunately, it will not help you. I don't think there was a woman there. So you there. think Paul did it himself, dressed up as a woman? I just don't think the child saw any, a woman. I really believe he was asleep. Now we're just grasping at straws. I, I'll never believe she did it. And then we get the truth. That's how she felt about it in the beginning of this investigation. No matter what we said, unless we said that there's absolutely no way Kara was involved in this murder, you know, uh, she was not going to be happy. 
some some families are in search of the truth. They really want to to put this past them and love their loved ones where they are. I just don't think that she was one of those types. And I mean, I guess I, I don't I, I guess I can't blame her. She's she's always been that fierce mama bear. She she'll always be that type of mother. And, and there is no way, shape, or form that I would admonish her for being that type of person. But I just don't think that she was ready to hear the truth. Uh she unless we were saying that Kara was innocent. If punishing herself for the rest of her remaining life. Uh, makes her feel better, makes her feel like that lets Kara know she loves her, then that's up to her. So the reality is your fight is going to be an uphill battle for the rest of your life. And it's not likely Kara's ever going to get out based on any of this. So that's up to the mom. We bring, this is up to all the loved ones. All we can do is sit there and bring them the truth of what they're facing. If they want to continue that fight, I know she had said she just can't enjoy life. She doesn't even take vacations. She feels like celebrations and enjoying life is betraying Kara. And there's a lot of people that we may not help their the convicts, but we help them in letting them know you can move on in life. You you have to because there's nothing that you can do, and you, you know your loved one is behind bars. Yes, love them from there, but this fight and this punishment that you give to yourself, it, it's in vain. You need to you need to have, be free. Your your loved one would want you to be free. This is a case where I think she almost not enjoys, but it's a part of her as a mother that says, if I continue this fight for my daughter, it proves that I love her, that I'm a good mother, despite all the evidence. And, and really you can understand why some of these moms really fight because a lot of people tend to forget that circumstantial evidence is evidence. And when we do the show, that's something we face all the time, but yes, everyone's circumstantial evidence is evidence and it can put you behind bars and it does not mean you have a wrongful conviction. And I don't, I think Fatima would agree with this on most of the cases that we get behind, there are usually some kind of, they're kind of simple, you know, it's an in-app investigation. It's, it's, uh, law enforcement not following up with some of the leads that they obviously should have followed up on, not testing certain pieces of evidence, which we've had cases, misidentifications, things of that nature. It's the simplest thing. And and there's a simple answer to it. That was something that had, or or a a very bad defense that was put on. You know, we have a lot of those cases. So, you know, when we have uh, uh, these huge type conspiracy type different there are different things that had to be put in place and it had to have this type of tactical timeline in order for things to have happen. You know, it, it gets so convoluted and so bad. And then you have this simple answer that the convicts give that, oh, I was at home sleep when all of this stuff was happening. I was home sleep. You know, those are the cases that I, it, 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 it kind of makes it easy for me because usually I can pick every little piece of the thing that, that this whole, this whole conspiracy that you've placed together, we can usually pretty easily put, put that stuff to bed. So yeah, yeah. So for, I mean, Fatima, I know as a <clears throat> as a defense attorney, you really try to come up with any conceivable way where the convict may not be guilty. But Chris, as an investigator, how w- was this case kind of a slam dunk for you? I won't say it was a slam dunk by far. There were uh, um, quite a few things that, you know, that could have been 
that was possible. You know, yeah. Is it possible that she could have uh, her DNA be on the on the weapon? Yeah, it's, it's possible. Uh, but, but now that you've seen the totality of it, and it's and, the to- and, that's exactly where I was going. It's the totality of the circumstances that bother me when it comes to cases like this. If you had been an investigator, if you had been an investigator, would you have been comfortable bringing this case to the DA? If I had been, yes, I, I probably I would. So maybe. it's a, so it's her gun, her gun. You've got a you've got a survivor who's pointing the finger at her, and then her yes. uh, her conspirator has turned on her. Right, and, and all she, the circumstantial evidence is kind of pointing in her direction. I mean, yeah. I, I again. So this is just just from the journalist's point of view. I mean, it does seem it, to me it didn't seem like one of our more complex cases this season when when you take it in totality. Right. I, I don't. I, I wouldn't say it was the hardest case. I'd have to say it was still very difficult, uh, mainly by the defendants. I, I always look at the history and. As does Chris, you know, that's what makes it difficult for us. And I remember us talking a lot that week saying, it's just, it's not out of character for somebody who's hooked on drugs. But if she was sober, it would be a different story. I think when someone's facing addiction, and we've come up with this over and over again in these cases, I don't know that they're the person that they once were. So if someone has a horrible drug habit and is desperate for that next fix, or someone is deep in debt because of gambling, it makes them do things that they probably wouldn't otherwise do. Yeah, a lot of the cases that I've investigated, a lot of the, the more violent cases uh, usually involve some sort of desperation. You, you never know exactly what these people, that they, 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 the drugs change them to a certain uh to a certain point and they, they become so desperate that they act so far out of character that it is hard to believe. And I can't help but think that this is the, this same type of case. You have a woman that has not been involved in, in many violent acts, uh, you know, that's just deep into the, the, the enthrall of, of drugs and her addiction. And yeah, so it, I do believe that it will make you and, and you and she talked about or they talked about how uh, painful when you, these folks are coming off those drugs. Uh, you know, I, I do believe that, you know, it will make you act completely out of character in order to heal or fix your addiction. All right. So I promised you an update uh, on Andy, the sister. So I spoke to her and uh, she thought about it, but decided that she was going to pass on coming on the podcast. She wasn't quite ready, but she did want to thank both of you for the investigation. Um, and she's really separating herself from this fight now. She, I think she, I think this did her a lot of good. Uh, she's not talking to her sister right now. Um, maybe that'll change in the future. Uh, her mom's upset with her, but she said she's focusing on herself, her children and her friends, and she wants some distance from this case. So, you couldn't reach Audrey, but I really do think uh, that Andy benefited quite a bit from this investigation. You know that while it's sad to hear, that's actually good to hear. Sometimes you have to separate yourself from everything that's happening. But I hate the fact that she's, uh, you know, not talking to her mother. That that uh, that's bad. But sometimes you have to you have to separate yourself from from that type of mindset for your own. Uh, safety. Right. And for your own mental health, Andy's a mom. She has a little girl she needs to be present for. And like she said, every time she, you know, was with her mom or talking to her mom, it was always about Kara and the case. That's, that's difficult. That's daily hurt Mm -hmm. uh, for Andy, not feeling validated, not feeling enough for her mom. 
I don't know, I'm not a psychologist, but you know, at the end of the day, if this is what's better for her to move on and enjoy life, then that's what we're here for. That's how we help people. I know a lot of people say every episode, oh, when are you going to help someone? (laughs) We have to remind everyone. We personally feel like we help people. My personality is you give me truth, you give me honesty, and Mm -hmm. you do it with as much grace as possible, which is what Chris and I try every single episode. And I hope that that shows that is not acting. That is who we are because we've gone through some traumatic experiences in life. And so, uh, and also we're prideful, stubborn (laughs) personalities. So we know what it's like for somebody to come to us and say, try to tell us something about maybe something we feel we knew better about. So we really do sympathize for these families, but we believe that it is still helping them. And Rob does remind us of that every single time. (laughs) (laughs) Yo, and and I I got to say this, you know, Andy was so emotional during that first day and the final day when we met with him during this investigation. So I am, Andy, if you're listening, I am very, very proud of you. If this helps you and your healing, then I'm, I, I'm so proud that you took this step. So um, we'll be if praying we for you. one person, then yeah, I'm grateful right. for that. So best to you and, and even to Kara's mom. You know, if you want to continue this fight and stand by your daughter, no one's going to fault you. We appreciated the opportunity, but if it's only Andy that is able to move on, then God bless her. Mm-hmm. Next week, uh, we've got quite an investigation. We're going to Oklahoma. There was a robbery, a deadly robbery, and the family's lead is that the convict wasn't even in the state at the time. So this is a this is a really intense investigation. You're going to want to see it next Monday night, 10 p.m. on Investigation Discovery. In the meantime, my name is Rob Rosen. I'm the executive producer and creator of Reasonable Doubt. I'm Fatima Silva, criminal defense attorney and co-host of Reasonable Doubt. And my name is Detective Chris Anderson. I'm a former homicide investigator and co-host of Reasonable Doubt. Have a good week, everybody. Chris, take us out. Oklahoma. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Nickelodeon was kid everything. But that marked one of the darkest chapters. Three predators worked at Nickelodeon. It made me wonder who was being hurt. Quiet on set. An ID true crime event. Sunday, March 17th at 9 on ID and stream on Max.